Um, we are in the last week of a series that we've called The Beautiful Way, which we are exploring the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So we've been working actually for months now through the chapter, uh, chapter five in Matthew. Uh, it's, it's literally been months. I think we've started this back in August and we are finally finishing chapter five today. Hey, can you guys give yourself a round of applause? So great. You made it through the whole chapter. It seriously has been really slow. We've been working like week by week by week through this whole thing. But here's why. We believe that Jesus actually wants to totally transform our life, completely. We're not here for just an inspiration, you know, inspirational message. We're not here to just kind of feel good about ourselves. We're here for change. And the stuff that Jesus talks about in the Sermon of the Mount is nuts. It's extreme. It's really extreme. If you've been with us, you know that he asks us to do some pretty wild things. Why? Because he wants to usher us into a completely different life, a transformed life as we follow him and his example. So uh, we've been walking through this every single week and we believe that as we follow Jesus, we get to experience not just a decent life, not just a good or a nice religious life. We get to walk into the most abundant life possible because when Jesus set the bar, he taught us how to live for him at the highest level and get the most out of life. So that's what we're all about here. Um, if, if you've been like me, some of this stuff has been really hard to listen to because it goes right after the heart. We're gonna dive into that today. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 43. Uh, we're gonna talk about love. You know, and we get all these little kids up here today. It's just really sweet. You know, like love is just oozing out of the crowd because we're just, you know, these kids are just so cute. Except it's not gonna be a cute kind of love today. We're going to actually talk about the full extent of what love really means when it gets into some difficult people. Anybody got some difficult people in their life? Anybody? You know, are you like afraid to raise your hand because one of them's in the room today? All right. Anyway, uh, look, we got some difficult people and we got to know what it means to actually live inside of those difficult relationships and how to care for them and be with them in the middle of that. So what does it look like? to love difficult people. Man, I mean, even as I say it, you probably, you're thinking about that one person, right? That one family member, maybe that coworker, it's your boss who's been driving you nuts. What do you do with that? How does the love of Jesus impact the way that you love difficult people? So this is where we're going today. It's gonna be great. Starting in verse 43, let me read this for you. We're gonna go all the way to the end of the chapter. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect. This is what Jesus has been talking about the whole time. Be perfect. That's the bar he's setting for us. Be perfect. I don't know if that hits you wrong, uh, but we have a phrase here at our church that we say all the time, uh, no perfect people allowed. Uh, and if you're perfect, you can go ahead and walk out of the door right now. And yet Jesus calls us to perfection. That's the standard. I don't know about you guys, I'm 
But I feel like sometimes the standard within the Christian world is a little less than perfect, a little less than excellent. Anybody like, you know, you're a fan of like some Christian music out there. This is what Christianity does really well. You ready? We take bands like U2 and we kind of create a Christian version of it, except it's kind of like a little bit mediocre. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody with me on Christian movies? Christian movies, like they're getting better. They're getting better. You got to give them some credit. But for a long time, man, I'm telling you what, it's just painful to watch one of those things because the standard is just so low. You know what Jesus says? Be perfect. Be perfect in what you do and where you go and how you live. I want you to set the bar up here because the stakes are too high. This is what we're going to talk about. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father is perfect. How? Well, he's been talking through the whole Sermon on the Mount and and saying that you've got to raise the bar, and it goes to a heart level. Are you ready? Jesus says uh, it's not enough to not murder anybody. If anybody in the room has not murdered anyone, it's like you can't just check off that box. He goes to a deeper level and goes to anger. If you're angry with your brother in your heart, it's just as bad. He says, it's not, it's not good enough if you haven't slept with someone you weren't supposed to sleep with. It goes to a lust level. You got to check your heart. Last week, we talked about retaliation. Anybody ever been tempted to throw a punch back? Look, we, we live in the world right now on social media where it is easy to throw punches, right? And it's easy for someone to shoot something at you and you just want to pop them right back with some verbal, you know, retaliation. Jesus, this is what he says. He says, you've heard it was said eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Josh shared this last week. But he said, look, don't resist an evil person. What? Now, everything on the inside of us at a justice level says, uh-uh, you know. He says, turn your cheek. If anyone wants to take your shirt, give them your shirt. If anyone forces you to go to one mile, go two miles with them. Jesus is extreme. He sets the bar way up here. Why? Because the stakes are too high. I don't know about you guys. I don't know why you came to church this morning. And maybe it was just for some cute kids. But we're here for a deeper reason than that. We are here at this church, not because I need a job, not because we want to feel good or we we just want to like waste a religious hour of our life. That's not why we're here. That's not why I planted this church. We're here because there are people outside of these walls that are facing a Christless eternity. In fact, 95% are without an evangelical church experience, which means they're not hearing about Jesus taught in his word and how to have a life-giving relationship with him for all eternity. And that's not good enough for us. We're going to do whatever it takes Sunday morning and beyond to tell people about this life-giving message that they have hope in Jesus Christ because of what he's done for them in his life and his death and his resurrection. That's why we're here. That's why you're sitting in these seats right now. If we set the bar any lower than that, we have missed it. <laughs> no joke, uh, I was in Orlando not that long ago, and um, they actually have a, like a Christian version of Disney World uh, called the Holy Land. Anybody ever been to the Holy Land? Okay, it's probably cool, but I'm telling you what, I just hope it doesn't include the incest, polygamy, and warfare that the Bible has, because that would not be a fun experience, okay? I'm just saying, don't bring goodness out there down to a mediocre level, Okay. Jesus calls you to a lot more than that. Now, let me check this out. In the verses we were just reading, you have to underline this word, ready? In verse 47, it says that if you greet only your own people, what are you doing? Underline the word more. What are you doing more than others? Jesus is calling us to more. Now, you have to catch this, okay? Jesus isn't saying that your moral perfection ought to be incredible so that you can be approved by God. 
That's not what he's saying. And for some of you in this room, maybe you felt guilty and blacklisted by God because of your past. That's not what he's saying. If you've walked into this room and you've got a dark past, that's okay. You're safe here in this room. What he's assuming is that we've got followers of Jesus that have clung to him in faith and rested in what he's done in his life, death, and his resurrection for us that we could not do on our own. And what he's now showing us is if you want to live in that reality, this is what it looks like. So it's not perfection so you can be approved by God. No, it's actually perfection so you can engage the rescue mission. So you can participate in the love of God and you can share the love of God with other people. He's asking for perfect love. That's what he's looking for. That's the standard. Because we've got to reach people who are far from God and they need perfect love. But the crazy thing is, when Jesus talks about loving our neighbors, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like we're in uh, one of the worst lonely epidemics in our uh, lifetime. There are more people who are isolated and alone now than I think ever have been. I think our neighborhoods and our workplaces and uh, the patterns and, and cycles of our life, I, I think they're, they're now pulling us into places where we're more isolated than we ever have been. I really believe that. And even when we talk about loving our neighbors, we tend to over-spiritualize it as Christians, we do. You know, loving your neighbors, oh, that's just a general, you know, feeling about being kind to people. What if it actually meant your literal neighbor? And when you're shoveling your driveway, when it just got a foot of snow on it, it actually means saying something to the person who's next door to you. I mean, saying something, right? I don't know about you guys, but in the wintertime, I don't see much of my neighbors except for when the snow comes out. What if Jesus actually intended for us to love the people who were proximity-wise closest to us? He gets in our face because he needs to keep the main thing the main thing. And he's talking about this. He's like, you've got to engage in perfect love. That's the standard. Don't settle for mediocrity. Don't settle for what the, the world settles for. Jesus is after something a lot bigger than that. Aim for perfect love. And I think sometimes we don't aim for perfect love because we've got a different idea of what perfection looks like in our mind. Anybody kind of measure themselves based on like Pinterest perfect moms or houses? And that's where you spend your time in? You just want picture perfect, like Pinterest perfect kids. You want Pinterest perfect house. You want picture, you know, perfect like job. I mean, just, and you work so hard to get your kids to a certain place. You work so hard to let your house look just the way it is. And you're like, man, that's my standard of perfect. You know what Jesus says? I don't give a rip about how your house looks like if you don't care for the person next door. That's what I want perfection in. I don't give a rip about how much money you make in your job and how great you are in your job and what kind of ladder you're climbing in a corporate level if you don't care about people. That's the standard for perfection. And man, as Christians, we're called to more. We are called to more. Wherever we go, we're supposed to be those agents of love. Jesus says the stakes are too high. Now, this is where I'm tempted, Okay. I was with a whole bunch of other church planners this week. I'm in a network in Greater Boston uh, called Send Boston. We're cranking out all sorts of churches, life-giving churches. It's an awesome deal. Love what's happening there. Uh, about 15 years ago, there were only three churches in the network, and now there's over 70. We hope by 2030 that there's going to be 300. We're really excited about the lives that God is changing there. And yet, I'm telling you what, like every one of us, we're tempted to measure the wrong things. When I get in a room of other church planners, you know, some of the things that start passing around, people are like, so how many are you running? You know, what you guys doing this year? Oh, you wouldn't believe the building projects we're involved right now. And I'm telling you, like, it is easy to measure perfection on the wrong thing. 
And I got to catch my heart. Because when I walk into those situations, I got to be like, man, my heart is after God and after people. Not after butts, budgings, budgets, and buildings, okay? That's what, that's what a lot of churches are after. Butts, budgets, and buildings. You can take that away, all right? If you get nothing out of my message today, you can walk away with that. You're very welcome. Okay, so, but here's the deal. With the people that you walk by, there is no ordinary person. That's what Jesus is all about. When he says, I want you to raise the standard of your love to the level of perfection, there are no ordinary people in this world. And sometimes we categorize certain people as like, those are the people I hang out with, those are the people I avoid, and you know, those are, those are just ordinary people and these are, these are my homies. There's no ordinary people out there. And Jesus calls us to a level of love so that we can engage every single person. I love this. C.S. Lewis talks about no ordinary people in perhaps his most famous sermon, The Way to Glory, and he says it this way. It may be possible for each of us to think too much of his own potential glory. Meaning we, we look at ourselves in the mirror, we think too much about ourselves. And it's hardly possible for us, for him, to think too often and too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it. And the backs of the proud will be broken. And this is what he says, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked with a mere mortal. Have you thought about that? When you're at the grocery store and you're talking to the cashier... A lot of us, we just pay no attention to her or him. We just walk right by, get our groceries and out. Did you know that that's not a mere mortal? Not just a cog in the machine. That's a human with a soul that goes on forever. You've never talked with a mere mortal. It is mere mortals with whom we joke, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And for some of you, you're just like, yeah, it's a little more of the, you know, immortal horrors, you know, than, uh, than splendors in my life. But Jesus basically wants us to know, and C.S. Lewis draws it out, that there are no ordinary people in this world. He's calling us to a lifestyle of love. Now, what's the extent of that? What's the extent of that? How far does that go? I'm only one person. What do you mean I'm called to a lifestyle of love? I mean, you're talking about every human being on planet Earth? Okay. You ready for where Jesus takes this? Jesus calls us to a love that breaks every comfort zone. <laughs> this is where Jesus is just super uncomfortable for a lot of us, okay? We read it, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, it's predicated on this thing before where he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now we have to ask, well, where did you hear that? Back in the first century, this was a very common phrase. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We're pretty bad at the love your neighbor part. They were decent at it. They just also tacked on the hate your enemy. Now, where did they get that from? The love your neighbor was a direct quote from Leviticus 19.18, uh, which was from the laws, what God had originally intended. He wanted us to love our neighbors. That much was true. The hate your enemy part was tacked on as an implication by religious elite people. It was never written in the Bible, hate your enemy. A lot of people will say religion is the, the reason we have so much hatred in this world, but God never intended it that way. Religious elite people, they were the ones who wrote that back into it. Why? Well, when they read Leviticus 19, it all hinged on how they defined the word neighbor. Okay, this is what a re religious people do. This is what they do. They get really nuanced about a particular meaning and then shape it and warp it into whatever they want and whatever suits their agenda best. So they're reading Leviticus 19 and they say, okay, neighbor um, must mean our brother or our sister, Israelite. 
It must mean the people who look like us and act like us. Neighbor must mean the, the people that are supposed to be just the people of God because God chose the Israelites as opposed to everyone else. And so it's supposed to be love your neighbor, meaning love your fellow Israelite, as opposed to other people. And so you can see after years, years, and years, it kind of shifted into not just to love your own kin, the people who look like you, you know, dress like you, act like you, but also with the implication of hate everybody else. And it got popularized. And people started t talking about that. So you love the people that are your people. You hate everybody else. So the religious elite, they saw the highest good as the preservation of nationalistic racial Israel. That was it. They were all about liberating the people of Israel from the bondage of the Roman oppressors. And as long as we can get our land back and be the people of Israel in our own place with our own comfort zone and all that, like that would be the highest good. And so they prayed for that. They worked towards that. It was just as long as we can just get our comfort zone and in our people, we're great. Guys, are we any different from that? Or do every day, like 24 hours a day, are we working for our own comfort, for our own people, for the people that we like best and shut everybody else out? Jesus said, you gotta love your enemies. When was the last time, I mean, just, just go there with me. When was the last time you hung out with someone you didn't like? Purposely, okay? Like, look, sometimes we find those people in the grocery stores and we're like, oh no. Uh, hey! <sighs> you know? You know what I'm talking about? You ever had an encounter like that where you see someone you didn't want to see and you're like, now I got to talk to them? Uh, maybe mom's calling. I mean, I don't know what we do in those, those excuse moments, but like, what? I mean, when was the last time you intentionally planned a moment to hang out with someone who didn't look like you, didn't believe what you believed, and didn't vote like you voted. Okay, now we're getting real, okay? Preacher, you gotta shut up, okay? This is getting a little too comfortable. All right, anyway, look, God's intention was never that we hang out with people who just look like us, just act like us, and, and you know, are, are exactly, all right, so I was thinking about this earlier this week. Why do we show off our kids so much? <laughs> Maybe this is wrong. But why do we have like such a good time being like, man, my, my kid is so cute. You know, have you seen all these pictures of my kid? They're so cute. And someone comes up to you and be like, yeah, they look a lot like you. Oh, really? Huh, huh. okay. Well, go figure, you know, isn't he cute? You know, like there's something about our kids where when we see our kids, we see some of ourselves in there. Man, we're so good at preserving ourselves and wrapping our little world around this tight little comfort zone. But Jesus says, man, that's not the way it ever was. In fact, the moment in Leviticus 19, later on in that chapter where they're getting this love your neighbor, it talks about something radically different. In Leviticus 19, 34, it says, the stranger who sojourns, meaning like journeys or kind of passes through, the stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. That was back to the Israelites way back in the day. It's later on in that chapter. I don't know how the religious elite missed that. Later on in Proverbs, it says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. When God had given the original promise to Abraham to launch a new people that would eventually become the Hebrews and the Israelites, his original promise was, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing. God never blesses without also calling us to be a blessing to other people. That is our identity as followers of God. And yet somehow, 
It's our gravitational pull as Christians, as religious people, to somehow box it in with the people who look, act, believe, vote, and behave exactly like we do. Jesus called us to a higher level of love, guys. Now, just to make this super clear, the religious elite actually came up to Jesus at one point and said, hey, well, who is my neighbor? Go ahead, Jesus. Who's my neighbor? He said, you want to know? Let me tell you this story. He told him a story about a Jew who went on a journey. And while he was on the journey, a whole bandit of robbers came in and just took this guy out. They took all of his stuff. They robbed him completely. I mean, stripped him, left him for dead on the side of the road. And without any help, he would have died. Two guys come by, one a priest and one a Levite. We're talking about religious people here. People who were Jews, exactly like the guy who... Um, we find so many excuses to just blow off the people that are right in front of us. We do, we, and we're really good at it. But Jesus said, you know who this guy's neighbor really was? He talks about this third guy named a, a Samaritan. You gotta understand back in the time, Samaritans were the arch enemies of Jews. The two of them didn't get along. It was Palestinian and Israelite today. That's how bad the tension was. They hated each other with a vengeance. There's a moment where Jesus' uh, top guys and his disciples actually look at Jesus and when they pass by the Samaritans, they say, hey Jesus, you wanna call down fire from heaven right now and just consume them? That's how bad the hatred was. And yet Jesus says it was the Samaritan that stopped, paid attention to the needs of the man on the floor not only cared for him and bandaged him, but brought him to what was the equivalent of a hospital back in the first century and paid for everything. He said, that's the kind of love we ought to have for everybody in this world, even the people who are most uncomfortable to us and the people that we would consider our enemies. Now, my guess is there are not many in this room that have full-blown enemies out there. But my guess is every one of us have people in our life that are super uncomfortable to, to live with and work around. And my guess is there's a lot of people that we would probably label more inconvenient to us. You know, our actual neighbors, our coworkers, people who just look and act and, be, and believe extremely differently than we do. And so church, I don't know if you guys knew this, but uh, back in 1960, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said that 11 o'clock on Sundays is perhaps the most segregated hour of the entire American week. This is what it was, ready? 96% back in 1960, 96% went to a congregation that looked exactly like they did. Now, the stats have changed a little bit today. Uh, I recently read this. Uh, about eight in 10, a little over 86%, almost nine in 10, have congregations with one predominant racial group. That's today. And sure, we can congratulate ourselves, but do you understand how segregated that still is? Gosh, man, I mean, even when I look around this room right now, like, we're mostly white. Not, you know, New Hampshire's mostly white, okay? So, like, we kind of look like New Hampshire a little bit, all right? <laughs> we're pretty pasty people, all right? I'll, I'll own that for me. That's me. Anyway, uh, what, what that says, though, is that we are so good at a religious area of being around people that are just like us. Did you know Jesus didn't call us to follow him just to be comfortable? You're not a consumer. Our American 21st century mindset tells us you're a consumer, you surround yourself with as many good people as you want, the people who will give back exactly what you want. And so we do that in church world too. We'll go to a church that we think is gonna give us the best thing that we possibly can. I don't know if you've ever heard of church shopping or church hopping or you know, whatever it is, like, but it is so easy. I've done it, okay? It's not a good place to be. 
But if you're going around to churches looking for certain aspects that, that's gonna hit your criteria of what an, a good church is, my guess is you're looking for all the comfort zones. That's what we're good at in religious circles. Jesus didn't call you to consume, he called you to contribute. He didn't call you to be in a comfort zone, he called you to get out of the comfort zone because the stakes are too high. The stakes are too high. If you look back at your last week and your last month and the only parties and hangouts that you had were people that looked exactly like you, you missed the calling of Jesus. He's called us to something a lot bigger than that. Ed Stetzer, a former LifeWay research leader, said, surprisingly, most churchgoers are content with the ethnic status quo in their churches. In a world where our culture is increasingly diverse and many pastors are talking about diversity, it appears most people are still just happy where they are and with whom they are. Do you know we're called to something bigger? This is why Jesus says God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. Are you guys intentional about hanging out with people who are not Christians? I'm telling you what, one of the most life-giving things every week for me is hanging out at a coffee shop. I, I hang out at Starbucks because uh, we don't have enough resources as a church for me to have my own office, okay? So Starbucks is my office, and I've got many offices all over the place. It's great. Uh, anyway, I hang out at Starbucks, uh, and this one guy uh, who was a part of an, an older group of guys, his name is Gary, uh, he, they, they meet every single day in the same Starbucks, every day. They're always talking, and they're talking about anything and everything, you know, culture, politics, family, you name it. It's just, it's all out there. A lot of, uh, any Seinfeld fans in the house, you know, we got a number of Seinfeld references that pop up. I'm like, ooh, cool. Anyway, uh, they're talking and uh, about maybe six months ago, seven months ago, I finally got up the, the guts to just be like, hey, what you guys talking about? And we started a little conversation and it's led, no joke, to probably about 40 hours of conversations with Gary now. He'll stay late after those conversations just to hang out with me. And now I got to find other coffee shops around just so I can get some more work done, you know, uh, because Gary loves to talk. Gary, if you're listening right now, bro, I love conversations with you. Anyway, um, but what's so cool about it is that I get to sit down with this guy who believes extremely differently than I do and tell him about the life-giving message of Jesus. I can't tell you how many conversations about Jesus we've had. And it's sprinkled around politics and global warming and vegan diets and all that kind of stuff. Like, it's, there's a lot of stuff we talked about, okay? But in the middle of all that, like, I sometimes had to get, I, I gotta get outside of my comfort zone and go there in conversations that I'm not comfortable with. I got a friend, we're, we're gonna do a massive egg hunt in just a little while, uh, just, just around the corner at this field, just down the street. Uh, we're gonna throw it for our city to just love our city, give them a great time, and hopefully lead them to a relationship with us that we pray will lead to a life-giving relationship with Jesus. But as we've been doing this this year, uh, I've been talking with my next door neighbor, John, who I play indoor soccer with every week, uh, which is super fun and breaking my body. Anyway, um, we're talking about like, what would it look like to actually make that event a better event? And instead of us owning it completely as a church, I thought, man, how cool would it be if we started maybe inviting some other people in the city to come be with us in it and serve with them, you know, have them serve with us. And so I'm talking to John about this and John's starting to say, yeah, man, well, maybe this group or this group would like to join you guys and maybe, maybe host like a, a bounce house or, you know, maybe host some of the popcorn that you guys throw. I'm like, that's a great idea. So he's inviting me to this party this week coming up that's gonna be uh, at a bar, hanging out with a whole bunch of people who probably have nothing, they want nothing to do with church, you know? Whole bunch of young adults, and I've gotta get out of my comfort zone to go hang out with them, and I'm psyched about it. Because Jesus is calling us to a different standard, guys. When was the last time you got out of your comfort zone and, and hung out with people, really spent time 
with people who don't look, don't vote, don't believe, don't act exactly the way that you do. And it's not the kind of sentimental love that we often make it, okay? When it comes to like love your neighbor, we often sentimentalize it, you know? Like, I just want to feel good about them. It's not like, like anybody like big fans of five guys in the house, you know? It's not like, I love five guys. I love five guys. That's not the kind of love he's talking about. No, no. When Jesus uses the word love, there's actually a couple different Greek words for love. Uh, there's phileo, there's uh, ero, or eros, and then you also have agape. Phileo is a brotherly kind of love where you just like hang out with your homies. You know, that's that kind of love. You're just like, you're, you're buds, you're bros, you know? Eros is that romantic love, you know, that Valentine's Day love. That's, you know, that's what that is. Agape has nothing to do with feelings. Agape is covenant, committed love. No matter how I'm feeling about one person or another, that's the kind of love that Jesus is inviting us into. And so it doesn't matter how you feel about a particular person. Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to love them. I'm calling you to love them. That's the kind of love he's talking about. Now, if you're like me, and you've got some people that you feel really inconvenienced around or uncomfortable with, or you actually have some physical enemies that you don't like hanging out with because you're just, you're worried about them. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? I love this. Jesus says that I tell you, love your enemies and what? Pray for them. Love your enemies, pray for them. Why does he say pray? There's nothing like prayer to stir the heart to love something that you previously didn't love. That's what prayer does. Prayer goes into the closet. It goes with God and in a conversation with God and actually starts praying on behalf of somebody else. Not you, but praying for, on, for someone else's behalf. I'm telling you what, if you hate someone right now, you want that to change in your heart, I challenge you, get into a 30-day prayer mission. I don't know what you want to call it. Pray for 30 days for that person. I guarantee you, your heart will be different for them than when it started. This is crazy. Back in college, uh, I was a, um, when I was a freshman, uh, I noticed that there was just a whole bunch of guys that were, you know, not getting serious about their life. I went to a Christian college. I went to, to Gordon College. But I noticed that there were a lot of guys who were just wasting their time and didn't really want to follow Jesus. You know, they were wasting a lot of time on video games and, you know, womanizing and sports and you know, just a lot of stuff. And I'm like, I couldn't really find a whole lot of guys to grow deep with, not knowing I had a whole bunch of junk to deal with in my own life. So I was just like, you know, one day criticizing, you know, like I was talking to another guy. He's from Sri Lanka, now one of my best buddies. But I was talking to him like, hey, man, you check these guys out on campus? Terrible, you know? And he's like, yeah, I agree. You want to pray with me every Friday morning at 6.30 in the morning for an hour? I'm like, what? It's like, yeah, no, I'm calling you actually out. I'm calling your bluff. Like, you're not going to do it. I want you to pray with me for an hour every Friday morning for these guys. All right, so college students don't live at 6.30? That's not an hour that we recognize. But I said Yes. And I'll tell you what, God did something in me where I realized that I had, I had a tendency to criticize and not love. I had junk inside of my life that I wasn't wrestling with. And inside of prayer, God transformed me and actually developed inside of me a compassion for the guys on that campus like I had never known. And so I started, I noticed that I was starting to love these guys. It wasn't just, I wasn't content to criticize anymore. And for some of you in, in, in here, like you're, there's something inside of us where we're just so prone to criticize. If you pray for people, that will change. He says, love your enemies. Pray for them. You'll be transformed by it. So, 
Here's the last thing I want to tell you guys. How do you do this? There is no way that you can love difficult people. There is no way you can love your enemies. There is no way you can love inconvenient people and get out of your comfort zone until you embrace the gospel. Why? Because did you know that when God stepped into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, he didn't step into this world because you were lovable. He didn't step in because you were awesome. He didn't be like, man, that person, like, they're so great. They're so lovable. Like, man, they're so good on a moral scale that I guess I have to come and die for them. Like, Jesus didn't do that. He looked, when he looked at you and he looked at me, you know what he saw? In Romans chapter 5, it says, while we were his enemies, Jesus came and died for us. It wasn't that he just put up with us or just kind of ignored us or, you know, was tolerant of that behavior, you know, like, and just kind of walked away. Jesus stepped right into all of our mess, right in it, lived toe-to-toe with us and loved us in it, gave his life for us. Do you think he felt warm fuzzies when he was hanging on a brutal Roman torture device, looking down at the people who were spitting at him and mocking him and accusing him when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. No warm fuzzies at that moment, but I tell you what, there was committed agape-like love because the stakes were too high. God said, I'm not willing to spend eternity away from the people that I created and love because I, they're precious to me. Not because they're perfect, but because they just, they're so precious that I'm willing to send my own son to die in their place, to take on their punishment so that only by faith and trust in him can they spend eternity in paradise with me. That's what Jesus said when he was dying on the cross. He looked at the thief next to him and he said, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. That's that kind of love. You will never embrace loving your enemies and going after people who are inconvenient and hard to love until you embrace the gospel. This good news of what Jesus has done while we were his enemies. But never also will you truly embrace the gospel until you start loving your enemies. Look, this, this past week, there was, there was a guy that I poured a lot of time into and energy, uh, and uh, we spent a lot of time, we, we even blessed him and his family over Christmas, uh, and I was really excited about what was going on in his life, and then uh, all of a sudden, he just kind of shut me out. It was kind of a hard cut, like, I don't want you in my life anymore, and I would visit his house and all that kind of stuff, nothing. Uh, and this week, man, I just, like, it would have been easy for me to just been like, all right, forget you, we're done, moving on. I felt like God was just messing me up with this passage this week. And so I felt like he like literally like, you got to do something for him. So I went to a store, got him a gift card to a great place that I love and said, man, here's a gift. You know, just enjoy it. I dropped in a little gift bag because he wouldn't open the door anymore. Just dropped it, ran, prayed for him. About two hours later, the same gift bag arrived on my front porch with a nasty letter. You can't control how people are going to respond to you but you can control how you respond to them and love them. Jesus didn't love you because you were lovable, but he calls us to love the unlovable because he did it for us first. And so you'll never truly know the gospel and embrace it and believe it. I mean, some of us in this room, we say, yeah, we're Christians. Of course we're Christians. Did you know that in Matthew 25, Jesus looked at some people and said, there are some people who know me and some people who don't, and you're going to know it by the life that they live? That your lifestyle of love is inextricably linked with your faith life? Jesus said there's goats and there's sheeps. 
And he looked at one group and he said, man, blessed are you. I want you to, to just enjoy paradise with me for all time, forever, always, because what you did for the least of one of these, you also did for me. But he looked at another group and he said, hey, you're the goats, depart from me. I never knew you. And they looked at him and said, what do you mean? You could probably say, we showed up at church. We read our Bibles. We did religious things. What do you mean you never knew us? And Jesus said, whatever you did not do for the least of one of these, the most hard people to love, the inconvenient people to love, whatever you did not do for them, you did not do for me. You'll never fully embrace the gospel and a life and a relationship with Jesus until you've learned to love the unlovable. So here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to leave today without that one person on your mind, you doing something for them. Look, this is getting real, but maybe there's someone in this room today with whom you have a disagreement or there's some animosity or there's something wrong. I don't want you leaving today with that hanging over you. Maybe there's someone on your heart that you know is inconvenient. It's a work buddy. It's a, it's a neighbor, someone in your life that you know that God's been putting on your heart for a little while now. I've got to do something for them. Don't leave today without having done something for them. If you need to go and pick up a gift card and drop it off at their door, if you need to, to watch their kids if they're having a really hard time, I mean, whatever it is, don't leave today without making a commitment. Man, I'm gonna love the unlovable because Jesus has called me to a high standard and he first did it for me. Last story for you. If you think this is hard in your life, let me tell you how hard it is for this guy. Ready? One of my heroes now, an author by the name of Bob Goff. Anybody know Bob Goff? Super awesome dude, okay? Um, if you haven't heard of him, you've got to know him. He's written these two books called Love Does and Everybody Always. You've got to read them. He's, he's a crazy man, okay? I think he's in his like 60s at some point, but he lives like he's 18, carefree. Uh, his love and the way that he extends Jesus' love to other people, uh, it goes as far sometimes as throwing a massive balloon party for his lonely neighbor in his street, okay? <laughs> he does crazy stuff, but one of the things he's done as a lawyer is he's gone to the nation of Uganda, heard about the witchcraft that was going on there and the child sacrifices, and said, I want to do something about that. Literally bought a one-way ticket to Uganda and said, I'm going to take on the witch doctor industry. Got an audience with the Supreme Court, met some of the other uh, uh, Supreme Court judges, and I mean, by the grace of God, basically convinced one of them to go to court with a witch doctor if a kid ever survived a child sacrifice. I mean, people were afraid to take on the witch doctors because they had so much power. But he said, if one kid ever survives this and you can catch that, we'll bring it to court. It happened. One kid survived a horrible child sacrifice moment. They brought it to court. They sentenced the witch doctor for life imprisonment. And things have never looked the same in Uganda ever since. This guy actually legalized, uh, became legal guardian of this kid that was almost sacrificed and left for dead. And in that moment, like he, he was loving all these kids and he was imprisoning all these witch doctors, and yet he realized that there was hatred in his heart towards the witch doctors for what they were doing to these kids. You know what Jesus did? Messed him up. He said, I want you to start loving these witch doctors. What? He goes to the prison where this guy tried to kill his now little boy and builds a relationship with this man named Kabi. He said he hated him at first, but he prayed that God would transform his heart. Kabi comes to know Jesus. Kabi then is used in that maximum security prison where no one is ever allowed to go in to lead hundreds of men to Jesus Christ. 
Bob now has started a school for witch doctors. Not to teach them how to be witch doctors. They know that. They're pretty good at it. But to teach them how to read and write. And the only curriculum for the school is the Bible and his book, Love Does. Because he believes that when we embrace the love of Jesus, Jesus is transforming us to become love. And so he's teaching these witch doctors how to become love, okay? When he first invites them to the school, he shows them a video of what would happen if they ever tried to sacrifice a kid again. He's like, I will kill you. And then he literally gets down on his hands and knees and washes their feet. And his book, Everyone Always, is littered with these multiple colored fingerprints all over the front of his book. They're fingerprints of witch doctors who have learned to go from hatred and killing to becoming love. That's the power of Jesus and what he does to transform lives. If a man like Bob can do that, and if our Savior Jesus can do that for us, I know you can do it. I know all of us in this room can leave today doing something for somebody because we're called to love our enemies. Let's pray. Jesus, it's a big calling. It messes us up because we love our comfort. We're creatures of comfort. Break us of it, God. Break us of our comfort so we can love this world the way you loved us. God, I pray right now that you would inspire all of us in this room. Inspire us, God, about one person. Don't let us leave, God, without that, that inspiration from you that says, man, I care about that one person, that one person. I want that one person. And God, give us the courage, give us the humility, give us the sacrifice on the inside of us to love that person in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. Thank you for the hope we have. Let us be those kind of people that extend it everywhere we go. In Jesus' name.